Okay, good morning, Story family. You're a good-looking group today. Thanks for being here live and in person in the Museum District. And I want to thank our Timber Grove family for tuning in over in the Heights as well. We love you guys. If any of you live near the Heights or you're looking for a, maybe a community closer to home in the Heights, 8200 Washington Avenue every Sunday morning at 945, uh, our Timber Grove campus meets under the leadership of uh, Pastor Kale. And today I get to teach them remotely as well. And we got folks listening everywhere uh, across the state of Texas and in other states as well, the parts of the world. So just welcome to everybody joining us online. If we don't know each other um, yet, my name's Eric. I'm the lead pastor here, and I've been away for a couple weeks. It's good to be back and uh, kind of back in the saddle today. Um, we're having an issue that is every pastor's dream. We have a shortage of, of chairs. So it, it might uh, be that we can scoot to the middle. Some of y'all that are in aisles with uh, seats in the middle that are, that are open, y'all can help us out in that regard. But uh, I'm just going to go ahead and kind of get started as we uh, shuffle around and make room for everyone. Great problems to have. Of course, no one wants to sit on the front row. Thank you guys for, <laughs> for taking that one. So, all right. There's a lot of exciting things happening right now at the Story Church. This is sort of the beginning of a new season. This is September the 10th, and uh, we're kicking off all kinds of groups and ministries and classes and studies this week. Um, hopefully, you've already gotten uh, connected to one of them. If you haven't yet, be sure to get connected on your way out the door. Stop at the Connect table. We'd love to set you up. Men, Tuesday morning, join me here down the hall for Leading Men. We're starting a new study this Tuesday morning at 645 um, uh, for uh, of the, the exhilarating, everyone's favorite, exciting book of the Bible, Leviticus. So that's starting this Tuesday. We'd love to have you. Um, we'll have breakfast and coffee from 6.45 to 7. And of course, the study starts at 7. And I, that's a selfish, shameless plug of mine. We got all kinds of different ministries starting this week. Not only do we have things starting this week, throughout the week, we're starting something brand new today that I've been looking forward to for quite some time now. I Loved the summer of love at the story. I sort of found my calling as a matchmaker, I think. I uh, set up several couples um, with the help of my team and sent them on dates. And who knows what can happen there. If we have a wedding announcement soon, I'll let you know. You'll be the, the whatever third person to know. And uh, fourth, I guess. I'm the third. You guys will be the fourth to know. Um, and, and I'll let you know if we have any news on that front. But it was a crazy fun summer. And now we're kind of getting down to business as we finally get to start this new uh, series of, of messages on the fifth book of the New Testament that is, I think, often overlooked. We talk a lot about the Gospels, Ma Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We talk a lot about the letters of Paul, Romans, 1 Corinthians, etc. And, uh, you know, we talk other parts about, uh, about other parts of the Bible. The book of Acts sits there um, in the middle of the New Testament, so important uh, to the rest of the Bible. And, and I think it's just often underappreciated. So we're going to appreciate it for like half a year. All right. So 26 Sundays starting today, we're going to explore the book of Acts. It's, this series will wrap up sometime around Palm Sunday of 2024. Okay. So if you are new here, you may not know that we went through the book of Luke earlier this year. Actually, we started in November of 22, and that took us through Easter of 23. We spent 23 or so Sundays on the gospel of Luke. And I talked about this before. I just want to make sure it's clear. Luke and Acts go together. They should probably be, like, stacked together in the New Testament order of things. 
John kind of gets in the way of Luke and Acts in terms of the order of the books. It goes Luke, John, Acts, but that, there's reasons for that. But Luke and Acts are prequel and sequel. And so we spent 22, 23 weeks on Luke. We're going to spend 26 or so weeks on Acts, and I'm going to explain today why we're investing such time and commitment uh, to a book like this, um, because I, I, I'm not sure there's a more important book for us to study given the state of things in our world today than the book of Acts, okay? What I want us to see today is that Acts is a continuation of Luke, and, and they share a lot in common, but there's one important distinction that you need to know so that you can understand what really sets Acts apart. So before uh, getting into Acts, I want us to go backward and look at Luke one more time. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Let's look at how Luke, the, the author, started his gospel um, in, uh, in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Okay, so if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Luke 1, 1, and, uh, and we'll, we'll read together this, uh, the first four verses, 1 through 4. Um, by the way, just heads up, we have study guides again. I see some of you holding them. Um, those went away for the summer and they're back. So um, th that's gonna be a part of our uh, series. And there will be a daily reading guide so that everyone here will be challenged to read every word of Acts as we go through this series. And again, we're gonna be in this series for six months. So that's one book in six months. I think that's doable, okay? So uh, be sure and get those daily reading guides on your way out or on our website, the resource page on our website. This is how Luke starts his gospel. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of things, the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So think about sort of who's writing, to whom they're writing, the purpose, why they're writing, and then look for similarities in the opening of the book of Acts. Okay, so just flip over with me, skip past old John there, and flip over to Acts chapter 1, verse 1. So this is how the sequel begins. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. So you should be picking up on some like similarities, right? Similar perspective. Obviously, the same author, this man we know as Luke, who was a first century doctor, physician, right? That's how Paul describes Luke, was a physician. So he was a man of, you know, research and facts and healing and and yet he was probably not a part of the upper class like many physicians are today. Like this physician probably didn't drive a Porsche to the med center, okay? This, he was probably more like peasant class. Most physicians were in the sort of underclass of that society. And this person to whom he's writing, Theophilus, was probably a Christian, I think most likely a newer kind of Christian. Um, it, 
this may have been Luke's boss or Luke's, um, let's say, uh, overlord. I mean, I hate, that's kind of a dark word they use in like Star Wars and stuff, but like, like the peasant class worked for that class and he calls him most excellent Theophilus. So there's certainly some kind of a hierarchy that, 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 is, that shows up here. So he's writing to and for Theophilus who has seemingly commissioned him to do the research and get back to him with the facts about Jesus. So Luke is writing these two works to the same guy about the same time. I think a good guess is about 60 or so, maybe a little after 60, 65 maybe, A.D. And he wrote these two books in the same way. They're almost exactly the same length. They're both written and designed, I think, from the start, because Luke was so meticulous, designed to exactly fill up one parchment scroll each. So they're almost exactly the same word count, they cover almost exactly the same number of years. So the Gospel of Luke covers from year, whatever, when Jesus was born, year zero to, to year 30. And the Acts of the Apostles covers from like year 30 to around year 60. So about a 30-year span. And it's that span and that book that we're studying with this new series uh, called The Acts of the Apostles. Okay? So... Lots of similarities there, I think. One major difference that sets Acts apart from the Gospel of Luke. It's critical that you understand this, or at least it is for a Bible nerd like me. I hope it translates like to real human talk. Okay, so, so I think it's important to note these two books have different main characters. And Luke is not the one who named these books. The names were superimposed onto these books later. We've been calling them the Gospel according to Luke and the Acts of the Apostles for over 1,800 years. I'm not here to change those titles. But if we could, I think more accurately, these two books would be called the Acts of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what the Gospel of Luke should be called. And then the sequel would be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit the Spirit of God. Because just as Jesus took center stage throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus did this, then Jesus did that, then Jesus went there, then Jesus said that. Throughout this book, you're going to see and hear the Holy Spirit doing the same thing. The Spirit of God, the third person of the Holy Trinity, the oft-forgotten sort of third wheel of the Holy Godhead is the central character throughout the book of Acts. We're going to see uh, that throughout this series, and we're going to learn more about why that matters as we go um, through this series in the months ahead, all right? So that's sort of the, the bird's eye view of this whole thing. I want you to have an idea of the landscape that gave rise to the book that we're going to be in for half a year. Now, why do we spend so much time studying this? What's the urgency that we would invest half a year's worth of teaching um, into this book called Acts? Well, Acts is a book like no other. Like you have four Gospels. You only have one book of Acts. You have 13 Pauline you know, letters written by Paul and a handful of other letters that were written by church leaders, right? You've only got one book of Acts that documented the aftermath of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So what we find in the in the book of Acts that's so important for our world today is a clear story of the inception of the church. We find a picture of the pure church, what the church was meant to be 
in its raw form what it was really supposed to be and what it still can be. And it's a beautiful picture, a picture like none other. And if you're a part of the church today, even though the church, let's be honest, in many instances today, it's not what it used to be. It's not that pure or raw anymore. Sometimes it's lost its way. But you're still a part of the most impactful, the most consequential movement in human history, and it's not even close. And in Acts, we get a glimpse of what it was in its inception, okay? And that's important. Why? Well, it's important because of how far and how often the church has fallen. The church's approval rating among the sort of peasant class, among its neighbors back in the day, like in the day of Acts, people loved the church. Not the leaders, not the governments, not the rulers, but the people loved that. That's part of why it grew so well, so quickly, so effectively, because the church was, was just oozing goodness and love and joy and hope. Well, things have changed. I don't know if you're aware of this. You probably are, but the church's approval rating has dipped a bit over the years. And the most recent studies and data indicate that the trust level people feel in America today toward the church as an institution um, has never been lower than it has been in the past few years. So um, one study by LifeWay Research, which is a Christian outfit, right? So it's not like, you know, anti-church sort of propaganda. It's a Christian outfit that did major studies that show that about 30 to 32% of Americans today have uh, any level of trust in the church as an institution in America. Now, um, that's pretty low, okay? For comparison's sake, 14 years ago in 2009, that number was 52%, and now it's less than a third, okay? Just for further comparison, the current president's approval rating is 39%, okay? The former president's approval rating, 35%, all right? So whichever side you're on, it's just really low, okay? So, 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 I mean, Americans trust the church today just slightly more than they trust big tech companies. 26% of Americans say they have some trust for Meta and Google and Twitter and all these companies that seem to be racing to see who can start the apocalypse first. Like, they're, they're trusted almost as much as the church, and we have to be willing to ask ourselves why and how did this happen? Like, what have we done? What role have we played? Why is it? We can't just blame it on an, a hostile culture or a, an unfair media or whoever we like to point the finger at. Clearly, there are valid reasons why people have walked away from the church wounded and never come back. And some of you, I applaud you because some of you are here with the wounds caused by churches or Christians or guys like me, and yet you're here bearing those wounds because you have refused to conflate fallen religions of men with the pure gospel of Jesus. And I applaud you for that, and heaven applauds you for that. But we have to be willing to to square with, to reckon with the ways we have fallen short, and that's what Acts helps us to do because Acts gives us a glimpse of what the church was, should be, and can be 
when we put the first things first, okay? So Acts shows us in spite of how far the church has fallen and, and long before the church ever fell, right? So long before the church ever became infiltrated by politics, long before preachers ever wanted to be celebrities, long before we made members feel like their money mattered more than their hearts or their souls, long, long before we started drawing clear lines between insiders and outsiders, long before the Bible was ever used by any Christian to enslave anyone or justify slavery or subjugate women or dismiss the importance of children, long before anyone manipulated anyone with you know, fake miracles or lights and fog and TV spectacles, long before any TV evangelist told your granny that she could have a special blessing as long as those checks keep coming, long before any of those charlatans spouted any of those lies, long before any pastor ever had an affair with his assistant or any cleric ever took indecent liberties with a child or a vulnerable person, before any of those crimes against God's law were committed by Christians and Christian leaders, before all of that, there was a church. There once was a church so simple in its desire to be filled by the Spirit of God so clear in its passion to advance the truth of God, so clear in its mission to tell the whole world and so willing to die to tell the whole world about what God had done for them in Jesus Christ so that the whole world may know that their sins are forgiven, that their debts are canceled, that the invitation has been sent, that they may come home and be sons and daughters of God, free and clear before all the fallenness and corruption took hold in the church, there was a church where scripture was the standard and not human feelings or opinions or politics. There once was a church that was so full of the love of God that the whole world couldn't help but pay attention. That's the church that the book of Acts describes for us. That's the church that the Holy Spirit unleashed in the world, that's the movement and how it all began. And it didn't start with some, you know, fancy church with a great building, with a charismatic leader, with a, a vision and a mission and a business plan. It didn't start with any of that stuff the church has become today. It didn't even start with an outward-focused movement. It started with a few apostles, ordinary guys, sitting and listening to Jesus and waiting for him to tell them what to do and where to go and what to say. And that's how Acts begins, by the way. If you, if you want to get back into it with me in uh, the book of Acts, we'll look at today's um, passage and see exactly how this movement began. Let's look at uh, verse 3 of that same chapter in Acts. Chapter 1, verse 3. And we're going to see that these apostles, before they were unleashed and sent out to grow the church, they just sat in uh, sort of passive posture, and were poured into by Jesus. And it begs the question, like, when was the last time you just let someone pour into you, minister to you, 
Like, like this is great, but this is sort of impersonal. Like, we, most of us aren't, like, real close friends or whatever. Man, that's what those groups we're starting this week are for. That's what those classes are for, is to just let the Spirit of God pour into us through those things. All right, let's start in verse 3. After Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs he was still alive. Here we go. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So what did he talk about? That's the first thing he talked about, kingdom of God. More on that in a second. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. So he's been talking about this gift while he was alive, before he was crucified, and now that he's risen, he's still talking about it. What's the gift? Verse 5, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's the gift. Verse 6, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus put his head in his hands and said, guys, you're still not getting it. All right? That's just another example. He's like, he's like telling them the kingdom of God has taken over the whole world. The Holy Spirit is coming at last. The gift of gifts. Get ready. And they're like, can we have our, can we have our nation back now? It's like, you're not getting it. And I'm not blaming them. There were, there were reasons they believed that was going to happen, but but this is just, you know, human frailty entering in the picture. And then verse 7, Jesus said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power. So he gets back to the Spirit. You'll get back, you'll receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up at the skies. He was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you up into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go up into heaven. Okay. So how did the church take shape? It wasn't because of brilliant men and women. It was ordinary men and women, fishermen, construction workers, stay-at-home parents, men, women, even some children. Like It was just regular people who sat at Jesus' feet for 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, and they were prepared by what Jesus taught them. We don't know everything he said to them, but when you read through the book of Acts, you're gonna see ordinary guys who couldn't put a sentence together when Jesus first found them, speaking the most eloquent prayers and sermons you've ever read in your life. And I want you to remember, remember back to what we just read, the 40 days or so that Jesus poured into them. Now, Luke, the physician, gives us sort of three big picture things that Jesus did teach them about. But I'm sure there was so much more than this. But I, I love the way Luke gives this to us. The first thing he said Jesus told them about, I just said it, was the kingdom of God. Why does that matter? Because the kingdom of God is perhaps the least appreciated concept in the New Testament. We don't talk about it enough. The New Testament talks about it all the time, but it matters. Why? Because if you're not a citizen of God's kingdom, if you don't identify as such, you will identify as some subject of some lesser kingdom. And you're created for more. You're created for more than the lesser kingdoms of this earth. What are some of the lesser kingdoms that we ascribe ourselves to or that we identify with? 
Well, some of us identify with our families. Our families can be great, but families in eternity will pass away as we know them. Family names won't matter. Some of us identify according to ethnicity, and a lot of young adults these days are being encouraged to identify according to you know, sexual orientation or gender issues or things like that. The, the whole world is, is encouraging us to identify with these lesser kingdoms, let's say. And all along, the invitation stands to identify with the kingdom of God, to be a citizen of that kingdom. <laughs> it doesn't even end there. Like, like, we can be tempted to identify primarily as, you know, Americans, right? Like, I love this country. Like, I'm so grateful every day. I thank God for this country, grateful to be a citizen of this country. But I only pledge allegiance to this country insofar as it is a country under God. Because my utmost allegiance must be to God. My citizenship, at the end of the day, rests in the kingdom of God and not just in the United States of America. Even more important for Texans, most of us believing that Texas is still the greatest nation on earth, like... (laughs) Like, Texas, as great as it is, will eventually pass away. I feel like somebody's going to throw something at me. But this, you know, everything's bigger in Texas. Well, the kingdom of God's slightly bigger than Texas, all right? So it's important to remember that, lest we fall prey to the same kind of idolatry that, um, that overtakes, uh, has overtaken other believers. Um, and so we are, we are citizens of God's kingdom. We identify with, uh, with that kingdom and the work he has created us to do. So that means we're not here to do, we're not created to do the stuff that falls outside of that. So whatever we do is for his glory. Whatever we do is for his kingdom. Some of us are so bored with life because we don't understand the high stakes and the, the great calling we have to be sons and daughters of this king that we pledge allegiance to and end up identifying ourselves with silly things like college football, you know? Um, And this is the great season, a great time to talk about it. And I know that about a third of our congregation is really happy today. Look them horns, all right? And uh, everyone else is really depressed, all right? So cougars and Aggies and bears and, well, the owls are happy. So those of you who support rice football, all three of you are happy today. (laughs) And uh, because you pulled off the upset yesterday, But it's crazy how attached we get to something that's so silly and so fleeting. And I I admit, I I scream with more joy at a Jordan Alvarez homer than I do sometimes in worship, and that's messed up, right? We have our our priorities out of whack. But the the highest kingdom is God's kingdom, and and by his grace, he has invited us into it, all right? So the, the kingdom of God is, uh, is here. Jesus said three things about the kingdom of God during his ministry. I'll go over them quickly. He said it is present. So in other words, it is among us. The kingdom of God is here. Perhaps not in its fullness yet, but it's here and it's still coming. Um, he said as much in uh, like the gospel of Mark chapter one, where, where he said the kingdom of God is among you. So it is present. He said the kingdom of God should be your prayer. So pray for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. That was part of his prayer. And um, finally, he said that the kingdom of God should be our priority. Seek first the kingdom of God and nothing less, and these things will be added to you, he said. So the kingdom of God is the source of our identity. 
The second thing he taught his disciples in those 40 days that Luke tells us about is the importance of waiting, and not just waiting idly, but to wait to be filled with the Holy Spirit, this gift that Jesus had promised. Okay, so uh, we, we read that in the, uh, in the reading from Acts, and, and in this uh, person of the Holy Spirit, we find the central figure of, of, of this entire book. The Spirit of God is the, the fuel in the church's engine. Without it, the church can really do nothing. And, and, and I can only imagine that after seeing the risen Jesus, and after feeling defeated by his crucifixion and then seeing him raised, the disciples must have been so fired up. Like, you know how humiliated and afraid they must have felt when Jesus died? Like, flip that. Like, do a 180 on that, and you'll have a glimpse of how excited they must have been at seeing him raised. Do you think the disciples could wait to have Jesus back out there in the spotlight again? Don't you think they wanted to throw another parade? Like, Jesus, we'll get the donkey again. Like, get back up on that donkey if we're going for another ride. Jesus, let's show the world that we were right, that you were right, that you were king, and that you're back and you're here to stay. Let's show them who's victorious. And all Jesus told them was to wait, wait, you're not ready, you're not ready, you must wait. There's much to do, but you need to wait. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is that important to us. Without him, we are powerless to do the work of God in the world, even to proclaim the victory we have in Christ. Without the Holy Spirit, we're powerless. I mean, this is almost as overlooked as the whole kingdom of God concept because I know a lot of Christians who want to identify as Christian and who want to get right to work and do the work of God in the world. There's so much to do, so many hungry people to feed, so many children to teach. There's so much that needs to be happening around the building and so many things that need to be fixed and there's so many good things that we can do together. Let's get to work. But you haven't been filled by the Spirit of God. And what will happen and what does happen all the time is folks come to faith in Christ, they identify as part of his kingdom, but they don't wait and open themselves to his spirit. They get right to work, and six weeks later, they're burnt out. They're hitting their heads against a wall, proverbially speaking. They just don't know why they're so feckless in their faith. They don't know why, you know, their family and friends aren't coming to faith in Christ too. They don't know why they're, they don't have the power. Well, they haven't waited and been filled with the Holy Spirit. It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that the church is able to do anything at all, that the church is able to, to be the church in the world. Romans 8, 11 uh, frames the power this way. Paul wrote it this way. He said, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. So the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in this room right now. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is living in in those who have received him. So this is a further sort of a rebuttal against what the world would say real power is. The world says you're empowered 
by the titles you hold. You're empowered by your educational achievements. You're empowered by your job, your career achievements, your family status, your marital status, how smart your kids are. You're empowered by whether your son's athletic or not or whether whatever stupid things we put up as like signs of power or achievement in this world today. You're empowered by the neighborhood you live in, by the house you call home, by the car that you drive. All of that is fleeting and false according to the word of God. The only real power in this world is the power of the Holy Spirit in us as um, believers. And so that is where we draw our power from. But we must wait for that and be filled with the Spirit of God to have that power. Third and finally, Jesus taught his apostles that once they've identified as uh, sons and daughters of the King, once they've been filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered as such, they will then be sent as his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Okay, so this is essentially a mission statement for every Christian today. We are to live or to be of his kingdom, to live by the Spirit's power, and to live for the work he calls us to do. Okay, so... And, and I think all of us would agree with this, where we get it wrong is we don't understand it has to be in this order. Like the first step in this process is identifying yourself as nothing less than a daughter or a son of the king, a citizen of his kingdom and nothing short of that. And secondly, once you do that, you open yourself up to the Holy Spirit, the gift of God to be poured into your heart to empower you, just as the church has always been empowered by the Spirit. And then you are prepared to be sent out as his witnesses, to these ever-increasing circles of influence. One thing I love about the, the design that our graphics person came up with for this series are the concentric circles. I don't know if our slides person can, uh, I, I assume she can hear me right now, but if we can have that design back up, the concentric circles that go out from Jerusalem, because that's exactly how it happens. The ever-increasing spheres of influence one at a time that God emboldens his uh, children, his uh, disciples, the faithful, to uh, expand into, to spread the gospel toward the outward reaches of these circles. It's exactly how it happens in our lives, but only if we do these three things in this order. We belong to his kingdom. We live by his spirit. We live for his work. Now, this mission is as countercultural as it could be because, and I, I especially hope young people are listening to this right now, because young people and old people, whatever, all of us, we're told all kinds of lies about why we're here and what we're here to do. And some of them are innocuous lies. Some of them are lies your loving parents will tell you that, hey, you're 16, you're you know, a junior in high school or sophomore in high school, and you are here on the earth to make A's and B's, all right? So you, get, so you can go to a decent school that I won't be ashamed to tell my friends about at coffee or, you know, at happy hour. And, uh, and you know, you're going to rack up an incredible amount of debt at that school. And so once you graduate with a decent GPA from that incredibly expensive school with some degree you'll probably never use, you're going to need to get a job. It's going to be a good enough job that you can pay off that debt you incurred because I made you go to a college you couldn't afford. And then you're going to need to get a better job. 
so that, uh, you, you know, and to get that better job, you're going to have to work harder than the other people around you. And once you have the better job, that's not going to be enough either because you're going to have a spouse that's going to want a bigger house. You're going to want to have kids and things like that, just like I did. Follow my footsteps. I did everything right. So work even harder, get an even better job at a better company. Just keep doing that until you have a heart attack at 55 or you retire at 65. Keep doing that, and then, and then, and then the good part, once your debts are paid off, you retire at 65, if you haven't died of a heart attack yet, you get to play pickleball for two or three decades. Pickleball by day, you get to, you, you get to watch cable news at night, all kinds of ads about gold and reverse mortgages, and then... One day, you die. That's it. Like, that's the lie. That's the lie this world will tell you, and that's not why you're here. You are here for so much more than that. The world that this world calls the real world, that's a secondary reality. The real world is the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is here, and the kingdom of God is coming in its fullness and you are invited to be a part of the kingdom of God. Once you subject yourself as a citizen of the kingdom of God before and above all other kingdoms of this world and pledge allegiance to that kingdom, you open your heart up to be filled by the powerful spirit of God. And once you're filled by the powerful spirit of God, you're sent out as a witness to the love of God and Jesus Christ poured out for each and every living soul. And just like the apostles in Acts, you will just die for the chance to share with the whole world until the whole world knows that they've been forgiven, their sins are forgiven, their debts are canceled, and that they are invited to this kingdom too. That's really the message of the book of Acts, and that's a foretaste of what's in store for us throughout the rest of this series. Let's pray together. Father, challenge us, Lord. We pray that we would receive this challenge um, to live for you and nothing short of that to identify primarily, first and foremost, with your kingdom, to wait and hope expectantly to be filled by your Holy Spirit, to be sent out into the world, not just to do a nine-to-five job in a cubicle somewhere, but to do your bidding, to do your work and your will in the world until everybody around us in our spheres of influence knows just how good you are, how great and wide and deep and vast is your love for us. We thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.